Government. We all know it's important to understand, be it state, local, or national, but doesn't the thought of it just make you want to, well, drink? If so, you're in the right place. I'm Angel Romero, your politics and pints aficionado, and this is Ballots and Brews, where we'll talk all things local beer while also diving into what in the world is happening at the local, state, and national government and what you can do about it. It's Schoolhouse Rocks meets the Daily Show meets C-SPAN, so let's get this show started. Hey, good evening, everyone, and welcome back to another edition of Ballads and Brews. We've got another great show ahead tonight. We are getting to chat with our friend Tim Carpenter, the senior political reporter with the Capitol, excuse me, with the Kansas Reflector, uh, to get his take on where things stand as the legislature uh, prepares to wrap up their session. Uh, but before we get to any of that, we want to start like we always do with beer. And so tonight we're excited to have our buddy Wes uh, from Strathman Sales uh, back with us tonight. So Wes, thanks for hanging out with us again. Yeah, anytime, Angel. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, things have, have changed a little bit since uh, the last time we talked. You know, the world has opened up a little bit more, and I think things are, are kind of trying to get back to, to normal. You know, how, how have you, how's business been for you? Has that impacted things for you guys at all? You know, um, so the bars and restaurants are back to, I would say, 85, 90% pre COVID. So, okay. um, so everything's kind of bounced back there. Um, the pantry buying that we were going through with, in uh, 20 and 21 are, have calmed down mm. and uh you know so really it is it is a usual um it, business as usual pre-covid um other than the fact that um you know the the shortages of product that we've, we've ran into we're running into product shortages and we're also running into price uh price hikes oh sure um un- unfortunately you guys will start to see that now in the market um, due to due to basically um, inflation, so th- those are the two main things that we're dealing with right now. That's yeah. Actually, I was just reading something the other day. I think about the price of barley uh, going up and being a big driver for for costs for a lot of folks. Yeah, and you know we're watching uh, you know the Ukraine thing closely. That's going to affect wheat prices, we think. But sure. um, you know, ultimately, I, I think you're going to see some sticker shock out in the market in the next well you're going to see it now we've already went up on a few things but you'll see it in the next uh three to six months as well sure sure so something to be aware something to adjust our beer budgets for uh, in the next uh, yeah. next couple next couple months uh well as we're you know as we get into springtime um even though you won't always know it uh, the way temperatures have been some days uh, but you know any uh, new releases or things we should be looking forward to yeah, I know it sounds weird, but we're we're releasing summer seasonals right now. Yeah. So, um, but you know, currently, I think we've we released a few so far, and we'll release the remaining amount the rest of this month. But um, some of kind of my favorites is, is Bell's Oberon. That's one I look forward to every every year. That one comes out, that's out available now, and then um, one that we're really excited about is New Belgium 1985 Mango IPA. Ooh. It came out uh, last year in Q1 and the whole country under forecasted and it was gone in like two weeks. So we bumped up the numbers on that. So don't, don't, don't be afraid. I, I bumped those numbers up quite a bit in Topeka. So uh, if you, if you love juicy IPAs, I yes. highly recommend uh, grabbing that one. Um, as far as some year round beers, um, anybody that's a fan of Deschutes out of Bend, Oregon, mm. um, they just released three new beers this week. One is called Hazetron. It's an Imperial uh, hazy IPA. Nice. And uh, Squeezy Rider, and it's a West Coast IPA. I'm, I'm happy to see some West Coast IPAs coming back. It felt like for a while, <laughs> Hazy's and uh, East Coast IPAs were taking over. And I, 
I've uh, always had a fondness for West Coast, <laughs> so I'm happy to see that one come back. Yeah. And then uh, the one, one that's really intriguing is uh, Black Butte. They're the, one of their flagships. They have a Black Butte NA beer now for anyone that's looking for some NA options that uh, that, that tastes like beer. Um, and then one from Sierra Nevada uh, is Sunny Little Thing, and that's a citrus wheat. So we okay. released uh, all four of those beers, and all four of those are year-round. Nice. Those are some. Uh, those are some. Uh, so sounds like some of my, my favorites come up here. I, I love anything that's got some some flavoring, some seasonal uh, fruits. Those kinds of things are, are my kind of my kind of beer. So I'm getting excited. Uh, you know, you talked about uh, forecasts. You know, I'm curious. You know, what is that process like to try and be able to forecast? You know, quantities and things like that, particularly for our area. It's it's difficult. Um, you know, seasonals are something that, you know, it's a big part of my position having to figure out uh, how much the market's going to want, because if you over forecast, well, now you're now you've uh, <laughs> you got beer hanging out after after season. Yeah. And um, it's it's and, and it's weird where we're we're uh, releasing seasonals before the season, you know, yeah. releasing summer in April. Yeah. And by by July. You know, we want to be almost getting ready for Oktoberfest. So mm. it's extremely difficult. It's something that we try to, you know, evaluate and watch the trends. And, and a lot of times, to be honest with you, Angel, it's, it's a gut feeling of what you think the beer is going to do. And then, sure. and then you just go from there. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's good to say it probably pays for you to, to, to kind of know, you know what people are, are into in the community and kind of know what the because, you know, of course, each community is uh, different from place to place. Yeah, and that's what makes it difficult in Topeka. We're just such a diverse community, so you uh, you have to kind of take that into consideration. But yeah, it's a it's a process. But I feel like over the years we've gotten better and better. And um, you hit on some, and you miss on others. Like for for instance, at 1985, you know, in, in Q1 last year, I mean, we way under forecast, and you know, we sat with empty shelves for a month. Sure, but uh, you just you never know. Sure. Yeah. Over time, are there are there any particular profiles you notice that that Topeka seems to gravitate gravitate to more than others? Right now, IPAs and high percentage IPAs seem to be the one huh. that I notice sell the best. And uh, it's my people, you know, <laughs> yeah they they uh, they love the night they love the nineteen twos as well. And that's one thing that um, you know is a price. Uh, someone who watches their prices on beer, 19 twos are a really good buy per ounce. They're, okay. they're better than a six pack. Nice. Um, and, you know, obviously the 12 packs are a way better value than they were five years ago. There used to be a buck break on a 12 pack. Now there's three or $4 break. So anyone that really likes a beer, I, I, I would recommend grabbing a 12 pack. It's just going to be a much better buy. Hey, yeah, that's a, that's a good deal. I'm glad to know that folks in, in Topeka, Shawnee County have good taste. So that's uh, that's good. Uh, you know, one of the things that impressed us, you know, of course, last week we got to visit um, the folks up at Woodcock Brewing uh, up in Holton, uh, which was really cool um, to, to check out their facility. One of the coolest things I thought was that they, in addition to their tap house, uh, they also bottle um, there, too. And I know that they're using uh, you guys to, to help distribute. You know, is that something you've seen with some smaller breweries or more of them getting into to doing more bottling and distributing that way? No, not really. I mean, uh, Sean, you know, uh, every brewery has their own vision of sure. what they're looking for. And Sean is, you know, he's, he's become a good friend of mine now that I've got to know him over the years. But, um, yeah, he just he just wanted to go into the off premise off premise uh, channel right away, which I think is really smart. I mean, you know, 
still, you know, 75, 80% of beer is sold through grocery liquor store and C stores. Yeah. So, um, if you're, if you're draft only, you, you've eliminated 80% of the channels. Um, I think. Yeah. So I, I thought it was pretty brilliant to go, um, both draft and package. It's just, it's a sizable financial commitment and, uh, not a lot of breweries just starting up are able to do that, but yeah, he's definitely, uh, I've not seen one like that. That's awesome. It's cool to, to, you know, to have a, a brewery from a you know a little small town like Holton be able to purchase it here in Topeka or even in any of the kind of surrounding counties. It's pretty cool. Yeah, for anyone that hasn't been up to his brewery, it's a quick you know twenty twenty five minute drive up to Holton. It's a it's a cool spot. He's got he's making good beer up there. It's family friendly. You know, there's an outdoor patio area. It's it's uh, it's a cool it's a cool spot if you haven't been up there yet. Absolutely, as we said, it's the oldest and largest brewery in Jackson County. So that's, <laughs> they they get to claim that, which is pretty awesome. Uh, let's see any you know any uh, new trends that you see coming from from brewers down the line or anything like that. You know, IPA is still king. It really is. Mm-hmm. Um, the juicy IPAs, the fruity IPAs, the higher ABVs uh, are selling the best. Sure. Um, one thing that I think we'll probably see a little bit more of is um, these these cold IPAs. I don't know if you've tried any of those. Oh, angels. I don't think so. Um, John from Blind Tiger is is brewing one. I'm not sure if it's tapped yet. Um, Bell's has one out in the market right now, but. Um, it's, you know, you have to ask a brewer cause they're much more specific about this. And I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, you know, tell you how the process is, but sure. essentially it drinks, it drinks like a lager. It's clear and crisp. Um, but it does have the hops that you want oh. in an IPA. It's just very, it's a very unique style. And I think we're going to see more and more of that. Oh, very cool. Yeah, I'm definitely going to have to try it out. That sounds, that sounds intriguing. So I'm going to have to check that out now. Uh, well, and of course, with warmer weather and summer coming, you know, that has everyone thinking about about you know, events and, and beer festivals and things like that. You know, any any events coming up that you'd recommend people to check out? Yeah, I mean, beer fests are a full go now. I have not heard of any cancellations, so we're, we're good to go now. Um, I just met with the people that run the German Fest yesterday, so awesome. they're good to go. And that is on, let's see, June 4th and 5th uh, out in Oakland. Yeah. Um, that's a really cool event. Uh, I believe that Blind Tiger is going to be out there serving some German-style beers awesome. as well as German food. And, and if anyone who hasn't been out to that event, it's really it's a really cool event. It's one of my favorite ones yeah. in Topeka. Um, so that one's going to be on June 4th and 5th and then, um, tap that Topeka, our, our beer fest downtown will be June 11th and I can get you the times on that one, but, sure. uh, it's usually mid afternoon and tickets are on sale for that now. Awesome. Man, it's two weekends back to back of some quality drinking in Topeka. It's yeah. a, <laughs> a good time. I miss that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, Wes, we've got lots of things to, to be on the lookout for uh, as well. So I think it's an exciting time moving forward to get back out to Beer Fest and to be on the lookout for some new exciting things coming out. So uh, thanks again for hanging out with us tonight. Yeah, anytime, Angel. Yeah, awesome. Hey, for folks out there listening, go ahead and stay tuned. Up next, we are going to have our beer flight of the night, where we'll recap all the craziness in state and local government. Um, stay tuned. You're listening to Ballads and Brews here on KSAT 785 Live Radio. <laughs> 
785 Magazine is proud to present KSEF Digital Radio, Topeka, Kansas. That's the thing you're listening to right now. And we're celebrating everything local and everything Topeka. Learn more at 785live.com. And thanks for tuning in. Alrighty, everyone, we are back with our beer fight of the night. A look at some of the things going on in state and local government, starting, of course, on the local side of things. Our first beer tonight is the City Manager Pale Ale. Yes, City Manager Watch is still ongoing here at Ballads and Brews as we keep our eye on the process for hiring Topeka's next top city administrator. So the last time we talked, the city was entering negotiations with Kansas Personnel Services, a.k.a. Key Staffing here in town, uh, to be the search firm for the next city manager. At last week's council meeting, council members made it official, voting to approve a contract with Kansas Personnel Services to be our official vendor for the search, giving the council what they wanted, which was a local search firm to conduct the search. Um, I do have to say this is the first time the council has utilized a local search firm in all their city manager searches, um, and there have been a lot of them. Um, And actually, I think this might be the first time they've used a local firm for recruitment of any top uh, city position. So here are the deets when it comes to that contract. Uh, So we are going to cough up about $25,000 as the city's flat fee um, for the service with KPS um, if whoever we end up hiring leaves within six months and we have to go back to the drawing board, uh, KPS will do another search for us for free. Um, If that individual leaves after six months but less than a year, we only pay a $7,500 fee uh, to KPS to bring them back in to do a new search. Let's hope it doesn't come to that, but we've got some options there if it does. Um, It will be on the city to pay any of the costs associated with advertising for the position, um, as well as any of the costs uh, or fees are associated with bringing the candidate here for an interview, i.e. like the airfare, hotel rooms, all that kind of good stuff. So what happens next? Well, KPS will work with the city council now to narrow down what qualities the council is looking for in a city manager. Um, that process will be starting uh, really, really soon. Uh, so once the once KPS has a good idea of those qualities, they'll then map out the process with the city's help uh, for interviewing the candidates, including kind of what the public impro- uh, input process will look like, timeline, those kinds of things. Um, as we've mentioned before, the city has learned a lot from their recent experience in hiring top administrators. So it's very likely there will be a public uh, reception type opportunity uh, to meet some of the finalists for city manager. So be sure to stay tuned for that. Um, I, for one, am very interested to see where the search goes. The council has indicated, as we've talked about before, uh, that they would be open to candidates with sort of a non-traditional background in this role. So someone who's not necessarily a, a been a city administrator before or been a city kind of bureaucrat before. Um, and they would also love to find somebody local. Uh, so they found the local search firm. And so we'll see if they can make their other Wishes come true and find a local candidate now for the position. Our next beer on the beer flight is the Banning Bike Spock. Uh, we do love ourselves a little alliteration here at Ballots and Brews. Uh, this refers to the proposed ordinance that City Council's members discussed last week um, that would ban people from operating bikes, scooters, skates, uh, or other uh, mobile devices on the sidewalks in the Nodal Arts District. Uh, a couple things to know about this measure. Before you start thinking that this is just old people shaking their fists at young rabble-rousers with their bikes and skateboards. A couple things to know. Uh, first 
this measure is really designed to essentially mirror the policy we have downtown right now when it comes to bikes and skateboards. Um, the policy doesn't say you can't have these items. It just says you can't use them. Uh, so in this case, once you get to Noto, you'd have to dismount from your bike or skateboard or hoverboard or whatever it is the kids use these days. Um, and you would just have to walk uh, with your uh, with your bike or whatever down the sidewalk. Uh, as you've noticed, Noto has been quite busy lately. They really started, really kind of started to come into their own. And as they expand, they've been looking at various policies to put into place to help that, that growth continue. Um, remember, Noto also has an ask before the city council right now about a proposed measure to create a business improvement district uh, to help pay for activities within the district. So a lot going on in Noto these days. Part of why this is such a big issue for Noto, too, if you haven't been there, is because their sidewalks are pretty narrow. Uh, unlike the big kind of wide sidewalks we have downtown, Noto has just kind of regular around the mill uh, narrow sidewalks there. So it really does become a public safety issue um, after a while, especially when you've got crowd events like First Fridays or some of the other big festivals they have up in Noto. Um, and the other thing that's important to note, before this policy got to the city council, it actually went through both the Complete Streets uh, Committee and the Metropolitan Topeka Planning Organization. Um, both these committees are specifically charged with reviewing the city's transportation plans um, and making sure that they that these plans are meeting the needs of all citizens. Um, and both groups actually gave their kind of gave their blessing, gave their approval to this measure before it got to the city council. Um, that did not stop the questions um, altogether, though. Um, Councilman Brett Kell, I think, might be the winner for most questions asked on this issue when it came up for uh, debate. The, this issue just really didn't quite sit well with him. Um, he raised a number of questions or objections about the plan, really stating that he was worried that if we started banning bikes in one part of town, to use his own words, where would we stop? Uh, he express frustration over what he sees as kind of a lopsided relationship between downtown Topeka business owners and the city when they were talking about citing that example of how uh, bikes and whatnot are treated downtown. Uh, he noted in his words that downtown, or in his uh, thoughts that downtown businesses uh, ask for various special rules or protections to be put into place for the purpose of helping grow and promote their business. Uh, but as, as it is right now, according to him, businesses are still closing early and not doing enough in his view to recruit, recruit more businesses to come down. So it feels like businesses downtown are kind of asking, 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 and not necessarily returning the favor. Um, and y'all, this was, he was just warming up. He also asked uh, about um, what potential impact this measure would have on residents at the rescue mission who frequently use bikes or other transportation uh, to get to and from the mission. Uh, things even got a little interesting um, at one point between Councilman Kell and the city manager um, as uh, Councilman Kell was asking about some, what potential legal liabilities the city would run into. I believe this was in the case of somebody if somebody was uh, operating a via, uh, operating a, their bike or skateboard or something like that um, and was hit um, by a car in that area while they were walking with their bike or riding their bike. Um, as he was finishing out this question, he called out interim city manager Bill Cochran um, for, in Councilman Kell's view, apparently making some negative body language uh, towards Councilman Kell while he was talking. Uh, hashtag awkward. Uh, uh, Cochran did clarify that he meant no offense by anything and was simply reacting uh, because the city would not be liable in any way for any instance that occurred to people as a result of this policy. Uh, so needless to say, council members were eager to move past uh, that topic, and so they finished discussion um, and agreed that they will discuss this further at their next uh, council meeting, where Councilwoman uh, Christina Valdivia-Alcala um, could be present since Noto is in her district and she was absent at that meeting. 
Uh, our next beer on the flight tonight is the Ogallala IPA. Uh, this, of course, referring to the uh, Ogallala Aquifer, something you most likely can't say after having a couple IPAs. So what's this all about? Uh, well, first, we have to talk a little about a little bit about H2O in Kansas. Um, let's start with what in the world an aquifer even is. So an aquifer is an underground layer of water bearing permeable rock. This means, importantly, that you can extract groundwater from it. So that's pretty important for our, our friends out in western and central Kansas. The Ogallala Aquifer happens to be one of the world's biggest aquifers, and it's located right smack dab in the center of the United States. Um, it actually starts around uh, Ogallala, Nebraska. Um, it spans 174,000 square miles from reaching up in South Dakota down to Texas. Um, this aquifer yields about 30% of the groundwater used for irrigation in the United States. Um, it also supplies about 82% of the drinking water for the 2.3 million people that live in its area which includes, again, a good chunk of western, southwestern, central Kansas. Um, in fact, as the Capital Journal reports, Ogallala, see, there you go, Can't, it's hard to say, the Ogallala Aquifer uh, provides 70 to 80% of the water used by Kansans each day. Um, further, as the CJ reports, the portion of the aquifer that lies underneath Kansas has increased land values in the state by nearly $4 billion. That's billion with a B. So here's the deal. The aquifer is drying up. Uh, the water level in the aquifer across western and central Kansas dropped on average by more than a foot this last year, the biggest single-year decrease since 2015. It's even worse in southwest Kansas, where water levels fell by 2.17 feet last year, their biggest drop since 2013. Not good news for a part of the state that is also in the midst of a severe drought. With no rain since May and not enough moisture from winter snows, farmers turn to the aquifer to pump even more water to water their crops. This is happening at a level that's pretty unsustainable. In fact, if we keep this up, experts estimate that about two-thirds of the water under Kansas will be gone in about 40 years. So we have quite the predicament here. What is one to do? Now, there are, of course, no easy answers. Um, just flat out stopping to pump water uh, from the aquifer helps to preserve it, but also denies water to those who need it. And here's the other kicker, too. For folks who own land that the aquifer sits under, the value comes from the aquifer being used. Not taking from the aquifer means plummeting land values for those who own that land. Now, when it comes to politics in the state house, this often sets up a classic showdown between those that are on the side of water conservation um, and those that are on the side, of course, of the agriculture lobby and the representatives from parts of the state that are impacted by the aquifer. Uh, this year, there's actually legislation proposed in the house that would have created a cabinet level department responsible for overseeing our water system. We do have a water uh, a water office right now um, that works extremely hard, but is not a cabinet level department. And it is, of course, chronic underfunded. Um, this measure that was introduced in the House, again, would have created that cabinet-level office to oversee our water system, and it would have forced the aquifer management districts in western and central Kansas to put tighter limits on how much water can be used. Uh, this language was subsequently stripped out during uh, during committee work. The resulting bill uh, does use some sales tax revenue to fund water projects, and it puts some enhanced reporting requirements in place from officials who oversee the aquifer, but that's it. Um, and this bill was actually part of a commitment that Governor Kelly made back at her state of state address when she committed to fully funding the state's water plan for the first time in 15 years. 
That's right. The first time in 15 years. The state water plan was established in 1989, uh, but over the last 14 years, the state has shortened the plan by about $80 million, uh, which, as you might imagine, severely limits the ability of the Kansas Water Office to do their job in conserving our water resources. Um, in case you weren't aware by now, water is a big deal um, in this state. It's a big deal in Kansas politics, and fights about it can go on and on and on. Uh, hell, it took until 2015 uh, for Kansas to finally resolve a lawsuit between ourselves, Nebraska, and Colorado over usage of water from the Republican River, a lawsuit that was filed in 1998 and concerned an agreement that was signed in 1943. Uh, as we noted earlier, time is not exactly on our side here. Uh, many are quick to point out that while this may sound like a Western Kansas issue for now, the resulting decline in the agricultural economy due to the lack of water can end, it can end up impacting all of us. So, here's to hoping a solution can be found sometime soon. Oh, and also, for those who decide to start playing a drinking game during this segment, Aquifer. Had to give you one more for the road. Uh, And last but certainly not least, we have the redistricting sour. That's right. The trial kicked off uh, this week in, or last week in Wyandotte County District Court over Kansas's congressional redistricting map. Um, some interesting insight from the start of this trial. Uh, lawyers representing the state, of course, tried right off the bat to have the case dismissed. Um, in denying their motion to dismiss, Judge Bill Clapper wrote that there was, quote, overwhelming uh, evidence of gerrymandering and rejecting the notion that state courts um, should have no role in ruling on the constitutionality of maps. Uh, As the Capitol Journal reports, both sides have their own set of experts that they brought in to testify at trial. Uh, The plaintiff's attorneys, again, those are the ones representing the folks challenging the map. uh, They brought in Professor Lauren Collingwood, a a political state professor from the University of New Mexico, as one of their expert witnesses. Uh, Professor Collingwood operates a consulting group that essentially provides research services in a number of areas, including redistricting, where they help uh, lawmakers develop fair and equitable electoral districts. Uh, You'll remember one of the issues in this case is the splitting up of Wyandotte County between the second and third congressional districts. Uh, Those challenging the map contend that this uh, splitting up of Wyandotte County dilutes the voting power of the large minority populations in Wyandotte County. Uh, In response to the state's argument that this splitting up of minority representation actually helped because it was adding minority voters to uh, to the other district, the second congressional district, uh, Professor Collingwood uh, presented research and data that showed um, that this really didn't bear out. Um, in, In his words, quote, this did not result in a corresponding increase in voter power to elect candidates of their choice. Um, lawyers for the plaintiff were also quick to argue that the legislature's judgment and decision making when it comes to state redistricting, just like any other issue the legislature considers, isn't beyond reproach. It's not on some pedestal that you can't touch at all. Um, now, of course, for their part, the state has also brought in their own experts, um, including Brad Lockerbie, a professor of political science at East Carolina University. Uh, he found the work on the plaintiff's experts, in his opinion, to be flawed um, and said that um, he himself and his associates found no convincing evidence that the maps deprived minority voters and, quote, were consistent with what was appropriate, um, in his words. 
Um, another of the state's experts, Alan Miller, a professor of law economics at Western Ontario University, uh, talked about this thing, this metric called the efficiency gap. Um, this metric looks at votes that went to a losing candidate or that pushed a candidate beyond 50 percent of the vote share um, in the last election that put some type of measurement on how fair redistricting is. Uh, Miller testified um, that this assessment really isn't an appropriate test uh, to use um, and it's one it shouldn't be apply here. This was uh, a test um, that the other side, the plaintiff side had used that Miller said really shouldn't be uh, really shouldn't be, be used here. Um, the plaintiff's attorneys, um, for their part, also vigorously went after the state's expert witnesses. Um, they started first with questioning Locker, uh, Lockerbie's testimony, um, enough to the point where Lockerbie eventually admitted that he didn't really have any particular experience in a lot of these facets of redistricting. Um, and by his own admission, his testimony wasn't really adding much to the record. Uh, for Miller's part, the other expert that the state brought in, uh, the plaintiff's attorneys pointed out that Miller's previously published work on the efficiency gap um, that he discussed was actually not peer-reviewed um, by other by other researchers. Uh, and in addition, there's also this little caveat that Miller did acknowledge that he so far has been paid a cool sum of $51,000 for his two weeks of work on this case. So side note, if you're looking for a little side hustle, apparently being an expert witness is a pretty nice gig. Uh, the state will wrap up uh, their part, their arguments in the trial this week, probably actually today, Monday, if you're listening to us on Monday, um, at which point things um, will be over. The, the plaintiff side is already rested, and so we should know an outcome here pretty soon. Um, there will undoubtedly, undoubtedly be an appeal uh, once the decision comes down, and so it does look like this case is destined for the Kansas Supreme Court, which will be interesting and, and a little history-making as well. Well, since a state Supreme Court has not ruled on this issue in Kansas previously as well. And that, folks, is it for our beer flight tonight. But stay tuned. After the break, we're going to be back with our interview with Tim Carpenter, senior political reporter with the Kansas Reflector, who has all kinds of really great things to share with us. Uh, so that's after the break. Remember, you're listening to Ballots and Brews here on KSAF 785 Live Radio. Well, all right, everyone, welcome back. Uh, tonight, as members of the legislature are enjoying their time away from the Capitol and hopefully staying out of trouble as well, uh, we're going to take some time to reflect on just what in the heck happened um, over these last few months, in particular these uh, last couple of days before the legislature uh, got out for their break. Um, and to do that, we have one of the best folks around you can talk with uh, about all things uh, legislature. We are visiting with Tim Carpenter, senior reporter for the Kansas Reflector. Tim, thanks for hanging out with us tonight. Good to be with you. Absolutely, absolutely. Thanks for taking time on your break uh, here over these these next couple of weeks. Uh, you know, just for folks, we talked a little bit uh, on our show about this before. Uh, first, I should ask: Have you slept since the legislature adjourned? Yeah, I have no trouble sleeping. You know, sometimes <laughs> the legislature's drones on, and you feel like sleeping during <laughs> when they're in session. So there you go. Catch a little naps right here and then. <laughs> Well, you know, for folks who might be uh, unfamiliar, can you explain kind of where, where we're at in the legislative process right now? Right. So the each annual session begins in January, and they have a couple small breaks, but they work until uh, early April, and they will take a three-week break. Now, traditionally, they, had fin- they would have finished up the 
vast bulk of their work, <laughs> and they would come back at the end for what's called the veto session. It's a historical reference to the fact that it gives the governor time to consider all the uh, weighty issues put before him or her and veto a few bills. And so uh, the legislature has a lot still on their plate to do at the end of the session when they come back on April 25th, but the governor has a handful of things that she can either sign into law or veto, and uh, I, I predict she'll, she'll veto a, certainly some legislation, and the Republicans and Democrats in the House and Senate will have some work to do when they get back. Absolutely. Yeah, well, yeah, we'll talk about those those last uh, kind of frenzied 48 hours uh, before the legislature got out of town a, a few weeks ago. You know, we've been talking on the show here about a couple of different uh, real controversial pieces of uh, legislation that actually, you know, ultimately did end up getting approved and, and forwarded on to the governor. That included the bill um, that concerned transgender athletes um, and the bill uh, concerning the Parental uh, Bill of Rights. You know, both those bills passed, but did not pass with the veto-proof majority. Uh, that, is, that is so important in order to override the governor's veto. You know, what do you think that the fact that they didn't reach that that critical point, what do you think that says about those pieces of legislation? It says that both of them are controversial, <laughs> quite controversial, sure. even among conservative Republicans. So for background, the, the legislation regarding transgender sports, the idea there is that uh, transgender girls or women uh, would be banned from participation in public school or public college sports programs and they would individuals would be assessed in terms of their gender at birth uh, there's no evidence that there are trans uh, girls or women participating in sports no evidence of that and uh, but the the advocates of it say we've got to put up a barrier because uh, Say, we'll say I'm an Olympic male athlete and I, I go through transition and now I'm an Olympic caliber uh, female athlete and I would really have a competitive advantage, they suggest. I, I, I doubt that's really uh, what happens on a regular basis. But uh, anyway, that's the assertion. The opponents, of course, say that such legislation will damage young trans uh, uh, girls as they try to sort through the really complex challenges of, in their lives. Uh, so I think part of this, this bill has some religious foundation and sure. anti-gay uh, sentiment as well. So the, the, the governor, if I had to uh, guess, is opposed to such legislation. <laughs> and uh, we'll see what happens when they, if she vetoes it, we'll see what happens when the legislature come back. You have to get a two-thirds majority of the House and Senate to override the governor. And as you said, though that bill did not pass with two-thirds majority. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, you know, and, and if I remember, right, I think this is their second go at trying to pass this bill through the legislature. I think you're right. I think she vetoed something comparable to this in the past. So, uh, you know, you never can. It's just so hard to predict what people are going to do. We have an election year and and maybe the bill is modified in a way that she could tolerate <laughs> it. Or maybe it's been watered down so hard that it's insignificant. Uh, so you never can tell. That's you know, there's one person elected governor. Absolutely. Well, and, you know, when it comes to the that trying to reach that veto-proof uh, majority, you, know, you talked about that split between uh, you know moderate and conservative Republicans, and you know that especially shows up, I think, in, in the Senate since it's a smaller number of, of people. You know, you could get a couple uh, more moderate senators that can really make a difference on that vote. Right. So I think out of the 40-member Senate, you're talking you need 27 people to override the governor. 
and that gets a little tricky. Uh, you know, all you need is, uh, you know, if you have three or four Republicans who defect, that creates the kind of, uh, that small shift is enough to thwart that threshold. Absolutely. And that's when you that's when we uh, end up getting those call of the house motions where everyone's locked in that room for a good couple of hours trying to try to twist some arms to get votes. Well, certainly there'll be arm twisting between now and then to try to see if they can leverage other legislation, perhaps, to to get the the in the House. I, I think the House is 84 out of 125 mm-hmm. and the Senate is a 27 out of 40 and to try to in advance. Uh, secure those votes by offering those reluctant legislators something else that they cherish even more. Absolutely, which is, is, is also an interesting point to speaking of, you know, trying to, to do some wheeling and dealing. I think Senator Stefan uh, found out the hard way that sometimes your, your deals do not always come to fruition. Yeah, Senator Mark Stefan of Hutchison uh, cleverly uh, withheld his vote on the congressional redistricting map. Uh, he and a couple other folks and that the governor vetoed the congressional map because she didn't like how it split Wyandotte County and moved Lawrence into the rural first district out in western Kansas. And so the governor vetoed that map and uh, he voted not to override so he could press some COVID-19 legislation that he had up his sleeve. And it ended up the uh, couple of two or three of the uh, folks that uh, went along with him all got stripped of some of their committee assignments by the Senate president. So there are consequences. That's absolutely, absolutely. Uh, well, well, speaking of, you know, one of the things that was really wow, we didn't even get to talk about this in this show yet. Last Friday, in the midst of everything else that was going on, there was all this action going on with the Kansas Governmental Ethics Commission. If you want to remind folks what that was all about, yeah, it's uh, you know, this this issue is sort of like uh, you you dump a, a a thousand piece puzzle on a table and try to sort things out. <laughs> so uh, that's sort of what politics can be sometimes. So there have been rumors in the state house for a few weeks now that uh, a collection of uh, House Republicans received subpoenas, and they were very tight lipped about it. And the presumption was, and and it appears to be accurate, that the subpoenas had to do with a Kansas Governmental Ethics Commission inquiry into potential campaign finance violations. I think we're talking about here where uh, a PAC, a political action committee, uh, they can av- they can they can put information out there about candidates, but they're really not supposed to coordinate with the campaign individual campaigns. So I, I think that's really what the problem we're looking at here. And the uh, so these these subpoenas went out and from the Governmental Ethics Commission. And suddenly, out of the middle of nowhere, uh, there was an effort among Senate Republicans to insert into a bill a requirement that the executive director of the Governmental Ethics Commission had to be an attorney in good standing, a licensed practicing attorney. And the current executive director is not. So if you can derail the executive <laughs> director, uh, perhaps you can trip up the the investigation or trip up uh, or cast cast doubt, public doubt on the uh, whether or not the ethics commission is run professionally. There's two other interlocking pieces of this, and one of them is that attorneys. Uh, there, there, there's a, John, a separate Johnson County and uh, in, inquiry by the board. Uh, excuse me, the ethics commission uh, regarding a group that uh, got involved in a mayoral race. And uh, some, of those, some of those attorneys were also involved in a separate, a, a third piece of this, <laughs> a, a legal dispute between two powerful Republican political 
operatives. Hmm. And so some of these attorneys involved in some of this intrigue are all wound together. And uh, it's possible that the subpoenas could have been based on information that emerged in some of these other controversies. So it's a very tangled web. <laughs> and uh, hopefully, eventually, uh, there's enough government transparency out there that we can really find out what's going on. Well, absolutely. Well, it, it's it's interesting too. The the Government Ethics Commission did not take this uh, lightly. In fact, I think all the all the commissioners signed on to a statement that they put out uh, on social media uh, that night, kind of hitting back at a lot of this. Yeah, it's a bipartisan board, and and it has some very uh, rigorous Republicans on it, and as well as Democrats, and they unanimously uh, endorsed their current executive director, who went to law school and was a practicing attorney, but his law license lapsed because he didn't actually use it on a regular basis. So he does have legal training. It was really just kind of an attempt to uh, prick prick the uh, Ethics Commission with a needle, I think. they, I, I believe that as it stands when the legislature left the Capitol, this whole notion of putting this requirement in a bill had kind of fallen on, to, on the wayside. Uh, but Nothing's ever over until it's exactly. over. So it could reemerge, you know, when we come back for the wrap up session. Absolutely. Uh, a side note to those listening out there, by the way, the Kansas Governmental Ethics Commission, you would not expect it, but they have one of the more entertaining Twitter accounts of state government. They uh, use their account to, to share good information, but also do it in a funny way. It's totally unexpected, but I encourage you all uh, to go out there and follow their Twitter account because it is unexpectedly entertaining, uh, I've learned over time. Uh, you know, another bill we haven't got a chance to talk too much on this show yet about uh, was regarding uh, folks who are uh, food stamp recipients. Um, and there was some legislation introduced to add some some work requirements, some job training requirements um, in order for people to be able to qualify for those. If you could talk a little bit more uh, about that legislation. Yeah, sure. This is would be an expansion of Brownback era restraints put on recipients of food stamps. And uh, you know, the federal government allows, they throw the money out there and allows the states to kind of fine tune who who receives some of that funding. So Kansas has a law that you've got to sign up for job training or work 20 hours a week uh, in order to get food stamps. And that would be, we're talking about able-bodied adults, we'll say 18 to 50, something like that, and with no kids and they're not disabled. So it's considered, quote unquote, able-bodied adults. Uh, and so you have to you have to meet one of these this job training or a work requirement in order to get that food aid, and they want to raise the work requirement to 30 hours a week uh, rather than 20. So they're just amplifying that requirement that people get out in the labor force and work for for what they get. So, uh, you know, the proponents of it say it's, you know, it's, we got to push people into the into the workforce sometimes. But critics say there's a lot of circumstances in which somebody would have difficulty. Maybe they have Maybe they have a part time job, sure. but it's not 30 hours a week. And there you're going to have to quit your part time job in order to go to this job training or something. So, it you know, I think, you know, for some political people uh, who just don't like government uh, aid, uh, you know, it, it maybe sounds reasonable, but sometimes I do not think the people advocating this have experienced that life and understand just how complicated and stressful it can be to to get yourself where you need to be in terms of, of, of that. Get off food stamps. Get off government aid entirely. You know, that, it's a, it can be very challenging. 
Absolutely, and it's it's and it's very often not a linear process too, because things happen and life happens, and and, and you get caught up in this complex of laws where people you know go on and off benefits sometimes too. So trying mm-hmm. to keep track of that all is really challenging for folks. Oh yeah, I mean, yes, indeed. So it's just an idea. It's just one of those ideas that says, let's make being poor so difficult, so challenging, so awful that people will just quit being poor. Right, right, and you know it's it's interesting too. This is not a new idea. This has been tried in other states before, uh, with uh, other states discovering in the end that it, it often had sometimes the opposite impact of what they were hoping it would do. Yeah, well, people, I, I wouldn't be surprised if people just bail off of food stamps. Yeah, absolutely. And which I mean, then, I, you know, yeah. Yeah, which of course creates a domino effect in the social service system too, and leads to challenges in other areas also. It's just bizarre because the food, the federal government provides this food aid. They've set a metric. Here's food aid. Here's yeah. X dollars, and please provide this to people in need of of groceries. And uh, I just don't understand exactly the motivation behind it. Yeah, at a time where we also have not yet lowered the food sales tax, which is an interesting combination of of policies right there. Yep. <laughs> well, and uh, it's uh, speaking of, so of course, the legislature is going to come back into town on, on the 25th. They talked a little bit about this, but, you know, what do you think are going to be the, the, the biggest things that they're going to try to take on? And what do you think they, they reasonably will be able to get done before they get out of town? Mm-hmm. Well, they could be here for a number of days because they've got some hefty uh, work to do. So there's several tax bills. They've, they've passed some bundled tax legislation, but there's two more. Uh, bundled pieces out there that you know Republicans and even Democrats would like to see adopted. You mentioned the food sales tax, and in Kansas has a 6.5 percent state sales tax on groceries. It's among the highest in the country, and you combine that with a uh, city-county sales tax, and you could you could be close to 10 percent in some areas in terms of your groceries. And a lot of people think that's uh, really uncalled for. The governor proposed that the food sales tax of 6.5% just be eliminated because Kansas has a big revenue surplus and let's just spend several hundred million dollars a year wiping that food sales tax away. The Some members of the Kansas legislature would uh, like to not give Laura Kelly such a quote-unquote win <laughs> during an election year and they've proposed a stair-stepped uh, policy, which actually might be more reasonable in the long term, that would uh, nick it by a couple percentage points every year. So after three years, it would be wiped away. And so that's still out there. You have education policy out there. You have the overall budget. There's a sports gambling bill that yeah. that is in the ether. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of things that they could do, uh, you know, just whip something out of their back pocket and go with it. Uh, so there's plenty of work for legislators to do. They're going to earn their money when they get back here. Absolutely. Well, and to say nothing, too, the fact that they are probably eager to get out of town, too, because every day they're here is a day they can't be out fundraising and doing other things for their reelection campaigns. Yeah, the whole uh, the entire legislature is up for reelection this year, and they'll be working from new district maps. So some people have to acquaint themselves with some potential new constituents. And uh, so the House and Senate maps, they may be challenged. You know, the congressional map is being challenged uh, in court right now. There's a trial going on right now. Uh, the House and Senate maps could be challenged. Uh, the, uh, the Republican leadership who that drew them 
I think they they made it clear that if the Democrats didn't vote for it, they could make maps that were a heck of a lot worse for Democrats. Sure. So the it, it was sort of a bipartisan kumbaya. Uh, to avoid a, a, a nuclear meltdown on the House and Senate maps, because you may or may not recall that 10 <laughs> years ago, the legislature fooled around and they were trying to nickel and dime each other and they ran the clock out and a three-judge panel of the U.S. District Court drew the maps in like a day or so and they didn't care about exactly. what incumbents were being protected, what districts it meant. Yeah. They just drew a bunch of boundaries out there and there were House members that ended up with that were left with 5% of the previous territory uh, for their district. Uh, you ended up with incumbents running against each other, all something that is try, they, the politicians try to avoid in the Capitol when they tinker with these maps every 10 years based on population shifts. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, lots, lots to watch here in the next next couple of weeks. And speaking of elections, of course, it is an election year and things are, you know, from this point on only going to to get uh, to get more and more interesting. You know, we saw uh, Governor Kelly just had her first uh, TV ad came out timed very well during the final four. Uh, OK, you in that in the in the championship game. And, uh, you know, she's just put out a list uh, the other day of a lot of Republicans that are endorsing her. So, of course, that campaign's in in full speed. Uh, you know, we, there's a number of things that you could talk about. Out there, but what what do you, what at the end of the day is kind of her biggest challenge uh, for reelection? Do you think? So Governor Laura Kelly is a Democrat, right? <laughs> and so this is a Republican-dominated state where Donald Trump did quite well in the last presidential election, carried the state. Uh, so you, she's what she did. She when she beat Chris Kobach four years ago, she really had to appeal to Republicans as well. She had to be. Uh, promised to be the bipartisan governor, to emphasize public education, to get the Kansas Department of Transportation back in good operating form. And those are two things that she heavily emphasized in the beginning of her administration. And I think to some degree, she's worked hard to make sure the buses were running on time of state government. Uh, a lot of state agencies were, in terms of personnel, were pretty lean when she came into yeah. office. And so just f functional operations were a concern. I think as the the last few years have unfolded, she's uh, pushed the economic development agenda and has tried to make the point that she's kind of the economic development governor. But this is a, this is a Republican state, and she's going to have to swing votes to win re-election. She certainly has an advantage as an incumbent, but she's not running against Chris Kobach this time. She's running uh, the presumptive Republican nominee for governor will be the Attorney General Derek Schmidt, who has uh, who's been a statewide uh, uh, face statewide election multiple times as AG, and was in the Kansas Senate before that. He understands government quite well. In fact, Laura Kelly and Derek Schmidt served in the Senate together. So he will be a formidable opponent opponent in November, and um, you know he's he's going to have to make the argument that he would do a better job uh, in running the state, and uh, Kansas doesn't need a Democrat governor, and I presume he'll try to tie her to President Joe Biden, and whatever Biden does is is uh, Laura Kelly's fault as well. <laughs> so uh, you know I think if if it's true to form. Laura Kelly will try to connect whoever the Republican nominee is to Sam Brownback. Sure. And uh, that was effective 
against Chris Kobach because Chris Kobach, you may remember, said, yeah, well, I'm going to be Sam Brown back on steroids. Right. So, <laughs> uh, so he kind of walked into that. And and uh, so I, I just think it's a tougher sell to say that Derek Schmidt's going to be a clone of Sam Brownback. I just don't believe that's true. And uh, so it'll be an interesting election. And, uh, you know, the there's a bunch of uh, people out there who who uh, didn't who, who underestimated Laura Kelly's capacity to win a statewide election in Kansas. And and they were proven wrong. So, you know, I, I all I want is a competitive race where people talk serious people talk about serious issues. Hey, absolutely. Well, and, you know, she's got, yeah, well, that's kind of interesting, too. Of course, she has a different running mate in this uh, election, too, than in the last one. So, of course, we had uh, Lynn Rogers in the in her first election. Now we've got uh, David Tolan, who comes from that southeast Kansas area, which is another area that is important for her uh, to win overall. And so I wonder, you know, any help that he can provide in that part of the state will certainly be helpful as well. Yeah, I just, uh, you know, I think... Uh politicians and maybe reporters think about who the lieutenant governor running mate is but i think your average citizen could could care less who yeah. that person is i mean you just you, you want to vote for the governor the governor has the power and uh you know that i think there's an exaggeration as in terms of the public's attention about the legislature so they care about the policies and the laws sure. and the taxes and those things but they a lot of people don't know who their state senator is or their state representative is it's it's just people's lives are busy and and they'll focus on this gubernatorial race in the fall you know there's a primary election which is kind of a done deal in august and then afterwards uh you know we'll get to it uh so uh, we'll just have to see what happens. You know, the economy could change. You know, yeah. if the economy cratered in a hard, hard way. We had a recession. Uh, incumbents get blamed for that. So, anything could happen. It's, uh, it's, it's. It, I think it's the good process is to let it all play out, uh, without trying to guess ahead of time what's going to happen. Absolutely. That is a great point. There's a lot of time between now and November. And if, if we've learned anything in the last couple of years, it is that anything could happen in any any given month, day, week, year. Uh, so who knows what will happen in those, those next couple of months. But it'll sure be interesting. I think we can say that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, as we wrap up tonight, you know, we have uh, just for fun, we have a, a little lightning uh, round set of questions. We know that you've covered the legislature for for quite some time. So we had a, a couple of questions about about your time with the legislature. If that works for you. Oh, boy. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead. What All do you got? righty. So question one, your favorite legislative committee to cover. Hmm. So there's in the House and Senate, there's committees called Federal and State Affairs. And mm. what's interesting there is that it can cover a very wide range of legislation. And, uh, you know, it can touch a lot of the tentacles of our lives. So uh, I think just the real variety there. Another committee in the House is called the Simply the Water Committee. And, uh, you know, that's important in a way that a lot of people don't recognize, because if you uh, want to vaporize western Kansas, just take away whatever that water resource and the whole economy will roll up and you can throw it in the back of a pickup and drive away. So there's certain things that are very flashy. You know, there's the abortion debate. Oh, boy. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, some of these core basic things. Uh, are are important to cover as well. You know, sometimes they're just not sexy enough to get people to read the stories, but I think some of those topics are are worth our time as reporters, such as water. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, let's see. So uh, on those nights, uh, like we had recently, where the legislature does go late in tonight, your favorite late night snack while covering uh, the legislature. 
So I used to have an office in the Capitol. I don't anymore. But uh, when I would sit down there and listen to these long debates, I had a microwave and I uh, cooked popcorn, you know, just the bag of popcorn, you know. And so the advantage of that is you can just put it in a bowl and, and eat it while you work. So Hey, absolutely. Uh, so that's a good snack food. Good call. Good call. Uh, so your favorite place in the state house to catch any tips or just general legislative gossip? So in between your coverage of committee meetings and work on the House and Senate floor, one of the things a reporter can do is just wander around the building. And those, sometimes those just impromptu conversations with people that you learn about stuff that's going on that you didn't know anything about. And so I think that's, you know, just as good a, a, a way to learn things as any other is just, uh, you know, walk up and down the stairs, walk in the halls, say hi to people and ask them questions, you know. You know, social media is another big source of information. I'm not, oh, yeah. you know, like Twitter and Facebook and so forth. You know, people put information out there that, and so you can learn about things that way. But, um, but I think I think just those conversations with people that that know a lot about what's going on. You know, no one person can be in all these places at the same time. Absolutely, yeah. It is it is interesting sometimes during session if you walk around you see certain groups of people huddled together in a hallway and sometimes it's mm-hmm. it's interesting groups of people and you wonder what's going on over there. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see, you know, this this was of course is a big question, but your your favorite issue that you've had the chance to cover during your time covering the state house. Oh, issue, gosh. I mean, I don't know. I mean I um, you know, as far as issues goes that I'm a little bit older, and a lot of this stuff they talk about doesn't affect my life. Sure. Not me personally, so I can kind of, I kind of have a little bit of liberty not to sweat it so much. Sure. Um, so I'll, I'll shift the question a bit to uh, what was the most interesting event, and I'll have to go back to a, a Senate uh, debate. There's Senate debates at the Kansas State Fair. There are gubernatorial oh, yeah. debates and Senate debates. And these, I would advise everyone on the planet to, yes. to go to the State Fair political debates. And they'll have one this fall, September, October, whenever the fair is. And and uh, one year they had one in Laura Kelly and there Chris Kobach, and there was also an independent candidate there. But uh, she hopped up on her little box to be a little taller at, at the lectern. These are outdoors. Uh, the Audience crowd members. has shirts. They have horns, they're singing, they're chanting, they're yelling at the candidates. It's like a barroom brawl. And it's just an amazing setting. And perhaps it's the way all debates should be. But she jumped up on on that box and just lit into Chris Kobach. And I think he kind of got on his heels. And Kobach was yelling at the crowd. They were yelling at him. And another example of this would be uh, Senator Pat Roberts was running for re-election in a debate. And basically, his campaign was a little little wobbly, and so he got a new campaign manager a couple of days earlier, and he wrote on a memo. This is this is what Pat Roberts has answered every question would be: "It's Harry Reid's fault." And uh, so he kept saying that. I mean, he would be asked all kinds of questions, and and he goes, "Yeah, well, if Harry Reid, blah blah blah." And so he was asked some question, and I think it was a Democrat out in the crowd yelled, "The answer is Harry Reid." And uh, uh, Pat Roberts turned to him and pointed to him. And said that's right <laughs> and so it's just that it's just sort of that uh kind of impromptu uh kind of buzz that you get at those events that that i think make it some of the favorite political thing i've gone to absolutely yeah i second that you, you all listen out there have to make out to it it's it's a really interesting way to get to know candidates and see them in a different kind of light too 
I have to say, you know, it, as, a, as a reporter, as a college reporter, I was at the White House when Ronald Reagan was president and a plane went overhead and nobody could hear what he was saying. And so uh, he, he made a joke that the uh, airline was run by a bunch of Democrats who intentionally <laughs> flew over the White House. But I also got to go to see an Obama State of the Union speech, and that was very poignant. Mm. And, uh, you know, I remember most about the people I was sitting by at the event and uh, who I chatted with, and one of them was uh, a victim of gun violence, and mm. the other one was uh, f- basically uh, ruined her mili- She had her military career ruined by sexual harassment. I don't remember a lot of what Obama said, but one of the weird things about those State of the Union speeches is that uh, all the lawmakers, all the reporters in there have copies, pr- printed copies of the president's speech. And uh. whenever the president gets to a page turn moment, uh, you cannot hear what he's saying because all the paper ruffling no. is going on. <laughs> and uh, I just thought that was just a, such a peculiar reality yeah. of things. You don't hear that paper ruffling I was gonna say, yeah. on, on the speech because the microphones are so sensitive. But I, those are just two things that stick out in my mind about <laughs> just kind of the oddities of politics in D.C. Absolutely. Yeah, that is super interesting. Uh, well, and, you know, the last last question is just you know for folks out there who might be wanting to go into to journalism one day. You know, there's lots of talk out there about uh, you know what's like work in the media these days. But you know, what would be your piece of advice for anyone wanting to go into journalism? Well, you know, the uh, there will always be a need for reporters uh, to cover the news, local, state, national, international. But the the issue is what form will the publication take. And when I started, I worked at a wire service called United Press International. Mm-hmm. It's like it was sort of like the Associated Press. And then I worked at the Lawrence Paper, and then the Topeka Paper, and now I work for a nonprofit that's online only. So the Kansas <laughs> Reflector is part of a twenty-six state. They're uh, in twenty-six states. It's a nonprofit organization set this up, and we have these little entities that cover state house and political news in twenty-six states, and they're they're expanding that enterprise to other states, but. Uh, if you want a job in Alaska, I think there's some open. And so there, and so all of our copy at the Kansas Reflector and these other entities is, is published online for free. Readers can read it for free. And uh, any ent- journalism entity, a newspaper, a magazine, a radio station, TV, can reprint our copy for free. That's awesome. So uh, there's no big ad you know, your, your stories you're reading aren't cut up by a bunch of pop-up ads that are very irritating. So it's a new model. It's a new model that's funded by donors. And um, <clears throat> I think it's a it's been a sensational uh, piece of the journalism in Kansas because, you know, there's papers struggling financially and they can have access to this copy for their uh, readers and people can read online. They don't have to worry about a paywall. So, yeah. I think the the there is a rise. There's other nonprofits operating in the political spectrum in Kansas, and I think that'll that'll continue to increase. And and uh, it's good. It's good that some that people caring people can put forward the dough to to make it happen. Well, absolutely. You know, and, you know, as interesting we talked about earlier about, you know, what people know about the legislature and things like that. And sometimes I take it for granted living in Topeka and being in Topeka. We the legislature is here and we see it and deal with it you know, pretty routinely. But for folks who live in, you know, Hugoton or liberal or places like that where you're pretty distant, it's, it can sometimes be kind of hard uh, to keep up with that just by lack of just not being around it all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic, aside from the medical brutality of it all, was that the Kansas legislature had to go more to a remote format. Yeah. And they had resisted the, the idea 
adopted in other states that you could listen to all the committee meetings of the House and Senate and the House and Senate floor over a streaming service. So Kansas really has a system that works pretty well. So you can go online, uh, YouTube, and you can go and listen to any committee meeting you want. And it's archived on YouTube. So you can, if you miss a meeting, you can go back. Say, we'll say you're from Garden City and you, you care about the House and Senate Agriculture Committees. You know, in the past, you might have to read a story here and there or... Uh, you know, go ask your state legislator a question or come yeah. yourself, you know, drive across the state of Kansas to go to a meeting. But now you can just watch those committee meetings on YouTube. You can watch it for five minutes, turn it off and go get a cup of coffee and come back. And you can re-listen to them. In addition, the testimony submitted by individuals who were in front of House and Senate committees is is uh, scanned and put online, and you can find that under the committee headings of the Kansas Legislature's website. Uh, so, so all of this is much, much more accessible to the average consumer of, of political news, and I think it's a great, great thing for just the democratic process. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, you know, I have to mention for reporters like you two, it allows you to add another dimension to your stories. I think I've read Reflector articles and other articles, too, that in addition to you know, the story can link to those those mm-hmm. hearings and things like that just to add another another piece to the story. Right. So as a reporter, it's going to allow you to be in two places at once. You know, back in the day, uh, I, I might have a conflict between two meetings that are both at 1030. Well, I can only be in one place at one time, but now I can go to one and then circle back and address the second one. So very cool. It's been excellent for, for journalism, I think. Absolutely. Well, Tim, thanks so much for, for hanging out with us tonight, for everything you do to keep us informed on all the goings on at the State House. Yeah, my pleasure. Good to be with you. Yeah, absolutely. For folks listening out there, stay tuned. We're going to take a quick break, and then afterwards we'll be back to wrap things up like we always do with our Take Action Moment of the Night. You are listening to Ballots and Brews here on KSS 785 Live Radio. Time to close things out like we always do with our take action moment of the night. Just a few things uh, to know for tonight. A reminder that tomorrow, if you're listening to the show on Monday night, um, is Kansas Voter Registration Day. Uh, that's right. Tuesday, April 12th has been designated as a special day to raise awareness about registering to vote in Kansas. Um, you can go to any of our social media pages and find a pretty sweet poster uh, that you could share that encourages others to register. Um, and be sure to direct folks to ksvotes.org where they can either register for the first time or check the status of their registration. Now, speaking of a Tuesday the 12th, that is also, importantly, the deadline to get your ballots returned for the Auburn-Washburn school bond election. And note that all ballots, this is important, all ballots must be returned by noon on the 12th. It doesn't matter if they're postmarked by the 12th, they must actually be returned to the election office by noon on the 12th. Um, as a story reminder, a ballot was mailed to all registered voters in the Auburn-Washburn school district. And to find out more information about the bond election, you can go to usd437.net slash bond issue. Um, and then finally, just a look ahead at this week's uh, city council meeting on Tuesday night at 6 p.m. Uh, the council has a pretty big agenda um, that night. So just a heads up, some things to watch for. Uh, first up, there are lots of zoning requests uh, related to some new development that's happening. Uh, for instance, there's one well, of the bigger ones. There's a request for some rezoning of downtown areas um, to rezone them to what's called mixed use. Um, this includes buildings in 
the areas from 5th to 2nd Streets along Van Buren and Harrison. Um, this is all part of following along with the city's master plan for downtown that we've talked about before. Um, rezoning those areas will open them up to being used for a combination of residential, neighborhood commercial, office, as well as civic and cultural use. And so you remember before we talked about that downtown master plan, that there's different plans for different parts of downtown to have different uses um, in those spaces for everything from kind of loft and apartment spaces to uh, office spaces to shops and all kinds of things. So this is helping open up some of those areas to those other uses. Um, secondly, this is also the meeting where the city council will be voting on establishing that business improvement district in Noto that we talked about before. So they've been talking about it, but they'll actually take a vote on it on Tuesday night. Um, also, importantly and interestingly, uh, the council will be voting on a resolution um, that, is er- that will urge the city council to consider reducing the mill levy for 2023 in light of the increase in residential property valuations. Um, it would also urge other taxing authorities in a county to consider reducing their mill levies. Uh, some of these other taxing authorities would include things like Washburn University, the Topeka Metro, you know, all those other places in the community that have the ability to, to levy taxes. Uh, this measure is coming from Councilman Spencer Duncan, who also published an editorial um, explaining his desire to see the mill levy lowered in last week's uh, Capital Journal, which you may have seen. Um, he feels pretty strongly because of that that rise that we talked about before of uh, pre- people's property valuations and, and, and folks having to deal with those, that we should provide them relief by reducing the mill levy so that way people's, uh, so as we're figuring out taxes and that sort of thing, people get some relief that way. Now, a reminder, this is just a resolution um, saying that the council supports this idea it doesn't commit them to actually lowering the mill levy. This is just a resolution saying, hey, it would be really cool if, um, but it doesn't bind them in any way. Um, and then finally, the council also has a number of discussion items, um, including we talked about earlier that all important uh, ordinance that prohibits spikes and skateboards in Noto. That will be a discussion item on Tuesday night. Um, the recruitment process uh, for the city manager. Um, that discussion will happen on Tuesday where we'll start laying out the process and, and timeline and that sort of thing for uh, for that hire. That discussion will happen. Um, and then they'll have continued discussion on their capital improvement budget and capital improvement plan as well. So busy, busy meeting. Tuesday. Again, as always, you can watch those meetings uh, live streamed online on the city's Facebook page um, or always on Channel 4, the C-SPAN of the Midwest. You can watch them on there. There's lots happening, so don't forget to uh, don't miss out on that. Um, and that, folks, is our show for tonight. So thanks so much for tuning in. I know there's a lot going on uh, tonight. If you haven't already, uh, be sure to check us out on social media. We're just Ballots and Brews on Facebook and then at Ballots Brews on Twitter. And we post all kinds of additional information on those pages, behind the scenes things, all kinds of all kinds of extra information, more than you can shake a stick at. Um, don't forget also to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app so you can always stay tuned with our latest episode. And of course, if you like what you hear, feel free to leave us a review um, on one of those apps as well. So until next week, friends, please, please, please stay safe, drink some good beer, and we'll catch you next week here on Balance and Brews on KSAP 75.5 Radio. Finish.
finish your whiskey or beer Closing time You don't have to go home But you can't stay Some other beginning